I invite you to take your Bibles and go to the book of the Psalms and Psalm number 27. Psalm 27. Some of you have a bit, maybe a bit surprised to hear me say that. Uh, I had mentioned earlier in the week that I had intended to speak on Micah and maybe do an overview, a summary of the whole book. And as I worked uh, yesterday on it, and I, it, it just wasn't coming together the way I wanted it to, and uh, frankly, it didn't grip my own soul. And I just kind of looked out and thought, this, this just isn't what the Lord wants for today. And so I went back and I started thinking about what to preach on, what, what we needed to hear, and uh, the Lord brought this psalm in front of me, and so here we are. What I find so amazing is uh, many years ago when I did itinerant ministry, I would travel from church to church to church all over British Columbia and other places, preaching in different churches every Sunday. And I'd often go with two or three messages prepared, and they'd be all tucked into my Bible. And as we would go through the service and sing all the hymns, I would listen to the, the words are being sung. And sometimes right through every hymn would be a common theme, and it would be one of the messages I'd have in my Bible, so I would take and I would preach that message. And this morning, as uh, Hev picked the songs for this Sunday, today, in mind of Micah chapter 7, and every hymn that she picked perfectly reflects what's in Psalm 27. And, I, and part of me, part of the reason why I was a bit emotional was because just realizing that God added his encouragement, his affirmation, preach the message that you've prepared. And so with that in mind, I'm going to ask you to open your Bibles, which I've already done, to Psalm 27. Take your Bibles and please stand and we'll read Psalm 27 together. We probably won't preach our way through the entire psalm. Well, we'll be here all afternoon, uh, but we will preach partway through. Psalm 27, and David writes, and he says, The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom should I fear? The Lord is the defense of my life. Whom should I dread? When evildoers come upon me to devour my flesh, my adversaries and my enemies, they stumbled and fell. If an army encamps against me, my heart will not fear. If war rises against me, in spite of this, I am confident. One thing I have asked from the Lord that I shall seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to behold the beauty of the Lord and to meditate in his temple. For in the day of trouble, he will conceal me in his tabernacle. He will hide me in the secret place of his tent. He will lift me up on a rock. And now my head will be lifted up above my enemies around me. And I will offer sacrifices in his tent with shouts of joy. I will sing, yes, I will sing praises to the Lord. Hear, Lord, when I cry with my voice and be gracious to me and answer me. When you said, seek my face, my heart said to you, I shall seek your face, Lord. Do not hide your face from me. Do not turn your servant away in anger. You have been my help. Do not abandon me nor forsake me, O God of my salvation. For my father and my mother have forsaken me, but the Lord will take me up. Teach me your way. O Lord, and lead me on a level path because of my enemies. Do not turn me over to the desire of my enemies, for false witnesses have risen against me, and the violent witness I certainly believe that I would see. Sorry, I certainly believe that I would see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Wait for the Lord. Be strong and let your heart take courage. Yes, wait for the Lord. Let's pray. Loving Father, this morning we pray. Again, O oh God, that we would hear your voice. We pray, O oh God, that you would speak to every heart. Lord, you know the needs, the concerns. Father, you know who is truly one of your sheep and those who are not. And so, Father, we cry out to you that you would speak, that the gospel would be applied, that the truth would be applied to each of us according to our situation and our need. And Father, we ask you for your help, and we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Please have a seat. 
If you look at the background of the psalm, although David doesn't actually give any specific statements about why he wrote or when he wrote or what was going on, but it's not hard to see from a combination of adversaries and enemies rising up against him, one bearing false witness against him, it almost certainly falls into that time period just after he has left Jonathan in the field, he has fled away to the tabernacle, he's taken Goliath's great sword and he's fled away and Doeg the Edomite has come behind him and borne false witness against him to the king. And now everybody is looking to rise up and go hunting for David to kill him. He is a man who is now, he's lost everything. He's lost his parents in a certain sense. He's lost his place in the palace. He's lost his dearest friend in Jonathan. And he flees away into the wilderness And you have to wonder if at some point he sat down with a papyrus and a pen or maybe he just composed it and memorized it and learned this psalm and wrote this psalm. And it was the expression of a man's faith. And brothers and sisters, the reality is we know what faith means. Most of us could give a theological accurate description or definition Faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. Faith is being convinced that God is able to keep his promises. And for so many of us in our lives, the life that we live day in and day out, faith is a great idea. It's a great concept. But we live pretty much by incomes and credit cards and and secure environments. When things really do go sideways, it's more other means and devices that we rely on than, in, than by faith. For David, faith wasn't just a theological description and a definition. For David, faith was a very real aspect of his heart. It was a very real trust in the living God. And as you look at the psalm, you can see how David's faith is described. There, there's four stanzas in the psalm. Stanza number one goes to verses one to three, and it's faith in God for salvation. Stanza number two goes from verses four to verse six, and it's faith in God for fellowship or communion. And stanza number three goes from verses seven to 12, and it's faith in God for the journey of life. And the last stanza, just short one, verses 13 and 14, it's faith in God for ministry. It's a faith that is lived out. It's a genuine faith for all of life. Spurgeon, who wrote his great treasury of David, and I gained a lot of help from him in his little commentary, said, this psalm can be read and understood as the experience of both David, all believers, and Christ himself. We see the Lord Jesus in the psalm. It's a call to faith. As, we, as in their day, they would sing all the psalms. That was the hymn book of the Old Testament saints. And many churches today use the psalm, the Psalter, as a hymn book. In singing it, it's an expression of our faith in God. But I want us to notice, just, I just want to work our way through the psalm and just unpack it and apply it as we go. And so I hope and I trust that God will take the thoughts and meditations of my heart as I worked on the psalm, and he'll use them. He'll speak to you through the scriptures and encourage and deepen and strengthen your faith this morning. Let's look again at at verse 1. He says, The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the strength and defense of my life. Whom shall I dread? I want you to notice the my phrases in that psalm. David's personal faith in God is for salvation. Now, we don't have in the record of history any recording of when it was that David came to faith in God. Perhaps it was in the backside of the Bethlehem uh, pasture land as he was posturing and shepherding his his father's sheep as a young man. Something about that experience brought him to a saving faith in the living God. We don't know when it was, but as certainly as we read the Psalms, as we read the stories of David's life, there's no doubt whatsoever that David was certainly a man of great faith. He had learned from his early days to trust in the Lord, and the Lord was his light and his salvation. The Lord is his life. Notice it doesn't say, the Lord gave me light, or the Lord brought light, or the Lord sent light. He says, the Lord is my light. 
And here's the wonderful truth of the gospel, our experience in salvation, that God meets us in the darkness. He meets us when our hearts are in darkness. He meets us when we are living in sin and darkness. And the very first moment or movement of the gospel is to shine the light of God right into our hearts and our souls. And in seeing that light illuminate us, we realize again that we are sinners before a very angry God. We see the darkness of our own souls. One of the great struggles I have with much modern gospel preaching is it's geared towards how you can live a great life, how you can take an already good life and make it better, how you can have all the the blessings of God and the idea of sin is just left completely out of it. But light shines into darkness. And there the Lord met David. In the word was life, the Bible says, and the life was the light of man, that's the Lord Jesus Christ. The idea of light in the text is a very natural symbol for all that is good. Light, knowledge, revelation from God versus the darkness, and the darkness flies away. In the very beginning, when God was creating the heavens and the earth, he did. He created the whole heavens and the whole earth, and then he said, let there be light. And light shone into the darkness. The very first experience of our salvation is the light of truth of the gospel shining into our sin-darkened world and heart. It exposes the sin and darkness that is in us. It reveals to us that we face an eternal hell, and it reveals to us that Jesus Christ, God's only unique Son, has suffered the wrath deserved by us to rescue and redeem us from hell, and it calls us to trust in Him. And by God's grace, like moths and flies, late at night, we head towards the light. Only by God's grace. Only by God's drawing us and bringing us near. So my question this morning as we think about what David said, The Lord is my light. Have you seen the light? Do you know that it is hell that you are bound for? Do you recognize the message of the gospel? Have you trusted the Savior? You say, what message are you talking about? I'll tell you before we finish our time this morning. But I want you to know, I want to ask you this morning, can you say with David, the Lord is my light and my salvation? Can you stand and look in the mirror of God's word and know for a certainty, a reality, that the Lord is your light and the Lord is your salvation? When you stand before God, and God asks, why should you come, why should I allow you into heaven? What will be your answer? Well, you know, I went to Noble Park Baptist Church every Sunday for 25 years. Won't cut it. Well, you know, I gave faithfully to every work I came across. I gave to charities. I did this, that, and the other thing. Won't cut it. Well, you know, I have a degree in theology. In fact, I've got a PhD in theology. That definitely won't cut it. If your answer is anything other than Jesus Christ and him crucified, I would suggest there's no hope. He says, the Lord is my light and my salvation. The Lord is his salvation. He has been rescued from the imminent calamity of God's judgment. He's been brought from slavery to sin, to slavery to righteousness. He's been brought from death to life. He's brought from being a child of the wrath child destined for the wrath of God. He's experienced the light of the gospel in his heart, and God is his salvation. And now light is within him and around him and reflected from him. And for all of us who know and love the Lord Jesus Christ, Jesus talked about it. Let your light so shine. What light? The light of our own intelligence and wisdom? No, the light of the gospel, the light that is God has to shine through us that others may see that light and hear and believe. A natural response to being delivered from great calamity is that we no longer fear. That's exactly what David says. The truth is the Lord is my light and my salvation. The consequence of that is whom should I fear? 
David was fleeing for him for his life. He has an entire nation behind him. Saul, with all his army, is coming after him. Even when he goes to certain places, the men of those places will look to deliver David into, into Saul's hands. And yet David can say, the Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom should I fear? There's nothing that I need to fear now because God is my salvation. We no longer fear. Because the power of the light has driven away the darkness. The power of the light has driven away the fear of death. Very similar context. You think back in the, in the history of Israel, back to Exodus 14. And Israel comes out of the land of Egypt. And they're all huddled by the Red Sea. And they can see Pharaoh and his army coming behind them as the dust cloud rises. The chariots rumble across the desert floor. And the people are afraid. And the Bible says that the cloud above went around behind them and separated Egypt from Israel. And on Egypt's side was nothing but darkness. But on the Lord's people's side was nothing but light. And they no longer had to fear because the light of God was above them, shining on them, protected them. Notice also that the Lord is the defense and strength of his life. Not only is the Lord his light and his salvation, the Lord is the very strength by which David lives. He stood firm against Goliath. Why? Because he was younger and could move quicker? Why? Because he had Saul's armor? No, he tried it and took it off. Why? Because he was a better athlete, a better military figure? No, he had no military training whatsoever. He stood there firm because he knew the Lord was the strength of his life. Brothers and sisters in Christ, we don't fight the battles of this Christian life in our own strength. For if we do, we will know nothing but frustration. But when we fight them in the strength that the Lord provides, then we know salvation and rescue and deliverance. The Lord was the strength of his life. How do we get through this life? How do we endure the difficulties that are happening all around us? We do it only in the strength that God provides. David could say, the Lord is the strength of my life. It's a wonderful truth. If God is for us, who can be against us? This is what Paul said in Romans 8. In speaking and describing the state of the believer, especially living in the world in which we live. We see what's going on in the governments and the political scene all around us. We see what is being brought against the Christian church. And we say, how are we going to survive? How are we going to carry on? And the answer is, we will carry on in the Lord who is our strength. We'll carry on in the fact that the Lord is for us. Therefore, who can be against us? In Romans 8, Paul carried on to say, For I am convinced... That neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. He lived his life in the great three-strand cord. The Lord is my light, my salvation, and the defense of my life, or the strength of my life. That's how David cared. David was an ordinary guy. One of the things I think that we miss or we maybe put a wrong emphasis on in these Old Testament characters is they're somehow, they're special. They're different than everybody else. The difference that they, that they were is very simply in the fact that the Lord was in their life. The Lord was their salvation. The Lord was their joy and their hope. That set them apart. It's the very same thing for all of us. We are all just ordinary men and women. There's nothing extraordinary about us. Looking about the missionaries and the great men of God, the great preachers through history, there was nothing different about them. They were ordinary people, but they had in them the presence of the Spirit of God. They had their salvation in Christ. They knew the light of God in their lives, and they knew God's strength in their lives, getting them through every step of the way. They were ordinary men living in the reality that the Lord was their light, their salvation, and the strength of their life. Reading verse 2, he says, When evildoers or wicked men come upon me to devour my flesh, my adversaries and my enemies, they stumbled and fell. Notice they're all in past tense. They came to devour, they stumbled and they fell. It's past tense. David is recounting his past deliverances through God's hand. And faith, we remember, is refueled and fueled by recalling and remembering past victories. 
And here the threat against David's life is from evildoers, the wicked, adversaries and enemies, opposition, enemies that come in many sorts and varieties. But notice what he says, they all stumbled and fell. And Spurgeon makes a great link. He says, you think back to the Garden of Eden, or not Garden of Eden, the Garden of Gethsemane. And there Jesus spent that hour with his father in prayer. And he wrestled greatly in prayer in the garden. And the moment came when the, the, his enemies were coming through the garden with torches and swords to arrest him and take him away. And he says, rise, let us go. My betrayer is a hand. And he goes out, and the scene in my mind as I replay it, he leads the way out, and the disciples are all sort of hanging back, some behind, some a little closer, some a little further away. And he says to them, whom do you seek? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. And he said, I am. And the Bible describes in the book of John how they all drew back and fell to the ground. You see, Jesus won the battle that moment, that night, not out there in the middle of those, that group of men, not so much on the cross. He won it on his knees in the middle of the garden. His enemies were defeated. And when he said the name of God to them, the power of that name just blew his enemies back. They all stumbled and fell over the cornerstone, if you like. And David says, listen, I look back and I think back of how God delivered me in the past. When evildoers came against me to devour my flesh, my adversaries and my enemies, they stumbled and fell. God got rid of his enemies in a moment. And you say, that would be nice. But, you know, my enemies have been around for a long time. But notice what he says next. In verse 3, he says, though a host encamp against me, my heart will not fear. The war rise against me. In spite of this, I shall be confident. David was recounting again his past deliverances by God through faith, and he declares his future confidence in God against an enemy. Look what he says. Though an army encamps against me. It's not yet happened. In other words, what he's saying is, I know from my past experience and God's deliverances back then that my God is still with me and he will deliver me again in the future. And even though he dealt with it quickly in the past, if an army comes and encamps against me, they're there for the long haul. Yet he says, my heart will not fear. In spite of this, I am confident. David declares his future confidence in God against the enemy. Some of the enemies, some of our enemies are defeated in a moment, but some encamp at a length. Some plague us for a few days, some for the rest of our lives. David cheers his heart in reminder of past victories. The Lord's defeat of past enemies refuels his faith in the presence against even greater enemies in his future. Fear and dread are answered by David's faith in the Lord. Brothers and sisters, genuine faith is, first of all, a saving faith. It's a trust in God that he will save us for all eternity. It is a faith in response to the light that we've received, the message of the gospel. It is a faith in the Lord our God who is our salvation. It is a faith that begins with salvation, but it continues through life. We have the idea that we're saved by faith in a moment. That's it. Done. Rubber stamp on our lives. We're in. It's all good. Carry on. No, that's not the call of the gospel at all. The call of the gospel is to live by faith, to walk by faith, to carry on in this life of faith. It's a faith that believes that God is able to keep his promises. It's a faith that's convinced of what the eyes cannot see. It's a faith that is convinced of things hoped for. David believed the Lord. David lived by faith. So my question to all of us is, what sort of faith do we have? What's your faith in? Listen to the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. Listen to the good news of the gospel. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. The simplest, most beautiful expression of the gospel. In John 3.16. We'll talk more about the gospel at the end. I want you to notice the second stanza from verses 4 to 6. It's faith in God for fellowship with him. In the first stanza, it was faith in God for salvation. And David writes in verse 4, One thing I have asked of or from the Lord, that I will seek, 
that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life to behold the beauty of the Lord and to meditate or inquire in his temple. David records his prayer to the Lord for fellowship. Notice it's in faith that he asks God. Whenever we go to, to prayer, it's an exercise of faith. Because we are simply asking for the things that we need, the things that we long for. We're asking for the desires of our heart. By the way, this is an aside here. God reads your heart. God knows your heart. God knows the desires of your heart even better than we do. And I think there are times when we say not what's on our heart. And I catch myself in prayer. If if you could hear my prayers, you might hear something like this. Lord, I want to want you. In other words, I know that in my heart I have a desire for you, but it's not not the way it should be. It should be a greater and deeper desire. So, Lord, I ask you, first of all, for a deeper desire for the Lord. Give me a greater desire so that I might desire him so that you can answer my prayer according to the reality of what's in my heart. He asks in faith. Faith in God gives us a boldness and a confidence to dare to ask of God that which is our heart's desire and what we delight in. David's asking and seeking is an expression of his faith in God. His asking is the prayer and the desire of his heart. How do we ask? The man and woman of God prays and asks in faith with a humility of heart. Always troubles me when I hear a prayer and it just sounds like God is the servant and the prayer is the master. You remember Samuel, you know, little kid in the temple? And the Lord called his name. And Eli said, when he calls again, say, speak, Lord, for your servant listens. How often do our prayers become, listen, Lord, your servant speaks. Not the way it's supposed to be. David asks in faith. He asks in humility. He asks with godliness of motive. His desire, we're going to talk about this one desire in a few moments, but his desire was that he would be in the presence of God. He would live and, and meditate and inquire and gaze on the beauty of the Lord. There was a consistency in his prayer. We pray. Uh, we went to uh, George Mueller Museum when we were in England and uh, went to this it's not much the same as it was. It's all been kind of renovated on the inside, but you did hear the story. The stories of a man who prayed and prayed and prayed, and they gave estimates of what the value of the money that he prayed in over all of his years of ministry with those orphans that runs into the present day close to a billion dollars. A crazy amount of money. But George Mueller every morning was found on his knees with his Bible open and he read and prayed his way through the scriptures and he prayed for things with consistency every day, praying and praying and praying and praying. I think I've told you the story before. He prayed for a man's salvation for 19 years every day, praying that God would open the eyes of his heart and save this man. And before Mueller died, he saw the man saved and baptized. It was a consistency. There was a submission to God. As you read David's prayers, you read what he says here, you see the submission. I've asked from the Lord. I want to dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life. I come with submission to God. It's putting God's will above ours. A man of faith prays with a submission to God, and he prays with a fervency of desire, and you can see it as you read those words. Notice David says he has asked one thing of the Lord. David has a single-minded desire for the Lord's presence and fellowship. Spurgeon put it like this, The man of one book or one pursuit is successful. Divided aims produce distraction. Remember Mary? She's sitting at Jesus' feet. And Martha's running back and forth with the plates and the cups and the platters and all the rest of it. And every time she runs by, she can just see her looking over at Mary, frowning. Runs back again. She's still sitting there talking, and Mary gets a little more grumpy. And finally, Martha, sorry, says to the Lord, get my sister to help me. And Jesus says an incredible thing. She's chosen the best thing. Brother and sister in Christ, if I was to tell you today, right now, you may ask one thing of the Lord, and that's it. You make one request. What would it ask? 
It's a tough one, isn't it? Because I don't know about you, but my prayer list goes on for pages. <laughs> I got all kinds of things I want from the Lord. But if we were to strip it all away, and it came down to one single thing that you might ask of the Lord, what would it be? We just got finished singing. You, you probably picked it up. All that thrills my soul is Jesus. He is more than life to me. And the fairest of 10,000 in my blessed Lord I see. All that thrills my soul is Jesus. David sitting in the wilderness and he's writing this psalm and he's expressing his faith to God and he cries out to God, One thing, this is all I want, that I might dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life to behold the beauty of the Lord and to meditate in his temple. One thing, what is it? He desired fellowship with God above all else. Mary chose the best thing, Jesus said, and it wouldn't be taken away from her. David's desire was seen and known by the Lord. God judges us very much by the desires of our heart. Beloved, what is the desire of our hearts? What is your and what is my undivided focus? What is the chiefest thing of my life? Notice that having fled from Saul's palace, David desires the Lord's house. Sometimes God must remove us from the comfortable, prosperous, and safe to kindle within us an even greater desire for him. Remember Nebuchadnezzar? He had it all. He was the biggest king in the biggest kingdom in all the history up to that point. And he had it all, and God took all of it away. Walking around in the field, eating grass, fingernails like claws, hair like feathers. He lost it all until he realized where it all came from. Until he realized who was truly in charge. One thing, David says, I've desired of the Lord. Notice also the different building terminology that David uses. I'm not bringing that up because I'm a carpenter, but it's just amazing of the different terminology. He talks first of all about the Lord's house. What does he mean? Does he mean like this, like building, walls, ceiling, floor, roof, all that? No, I think what he means is, is the, the family of the Lord. One thing that I have asked from the Lord, that I shall seek, that I may dwell in the family, the house of the Lord. We're talking about the house of David or the house of Saul. He didn't mean the physical building. He meant the dynasty, the, the family that David had around him. And according to David's words here, his father and mother have forsaken him or have left him behind and he's lost everything. He says, I want to be dwelling in the family of the living God. Notice he also says the Lord's temple or palace. The word for temple is the word that's also used for palace. It means the divine or royal residence. He wanted to be with the Lord in his place. He speaks about the tabernacle, the place of worship where fellowship was obtained and achieved by the sprinkling of blood on the top of the the, uh, Ark of the Covenant. He says, I want to be in the rock. He speaks there in verse 5. He will lift me up on a rock. And no doubt that brought memories. Maybe David was right there in the midst of the strongholds. He looked around him and he saw these great big caves. You might have seen online pictures of these caves in, in, the, in Israel. Mammoth caves all made out of rock. Maybe he looked around and thought, I want to be on the rock, not just this rock. Because this rock will melt if the Lord appears here before me. I want to be on the rock that is Christ. David wants in this one desire what the priests enjoy, unrestrained access to his Lord, to behold the beauty of the Lord, to meditate or inquire of the Lord, to entering into the temple or tabernacle or church, to be seen, to hear the preaching, to sing the hymns, is all merely second best. Why did you come to church today? If I might be so bold as to ask your motives. What are you doing here? Well, you know, it's Sunday. I mean, come on, man. It's, we're Baptists. We don't skip church. We go to church on Sunday. 
Oh, it's Sunday. It's the place where I'm supposed to be. Well, you know, I, I got my golf tee off isn't until 2 o'clock. I got a couple hours to kill. I think I'll go to church. Well, you know, all my friends, my community, all the people I spend time with, they're all part of my local church. For us and our family, where our family is thousands of miles away, that's very easy to settle in that going, you know, I need this place because there are people there that I relate to, I can respond to. There are people there I know and love, and I need that community around me, so I go to church. But that's not what David said. He said, one thing I have asked from the Lord that I shall seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life. Why? To be seen singing the Psalms. Maybe to play his lyre and his zither and, and, and sing the songs. No, no, he says, I desire to, to behold the beauty of the Lord and to meditate in his temple. If we go to church to be seen, to hear the preaching, to sing the psalms, or sing the hymns. It's all merely second best. Our main desire must be in God's house to see him, to meditate on him, to inquire of him. He must be the center and focus of why we come to church. David wanted to behold the beauty of the Lord. Obviously not a physical beauty because God is spirit and therefore invisible. He's talking about the beauty of the holiness of the Lord, the beauty of the glory of the Lord, the beauty of the majesty of the Lord's holiness. He wanted to come into the presence of the living God and sit and gaze on one who is absolutely holy and righteous and just and good. David wanted to meditate and inquire of the Lord, not merely to see him, but to converse with him. You ever meet up with people that... Within a few minutes, you can tell you're just going to click. Uh, Jeremy and Jenny Bailey in Wales went there. I'd never seen the guy before. He had no idea. I, was, I hadn't shaved for five weeks, for goodness sake, and I didn't have any nice clothes to wear. So we just kind of went in looking like, well, I look like a hobo. My wife always looks nice. And we went in there, and, and he's in this suit and tie, and we started talking, and it was like everything else just kind of whoosh away. And we were talking back and forth and we were sharing stories and, and, and it was like you, you can't wait for them to finish because you got something to add and you just, you know. Fellowship, rich communion between two brothers in Christ. He's 20-something years older than me, living in the other side of the world, so much different, yet we had Christ in common, so that fellowship was so sweet. And what David wants is to come in and to meditate on his temple or inquire in his temple to behold the beauty of the Lord and to speak with the Lord and converse back and forth with that rich communion that only God and and saved can have. That's his desire. And brothers and sisters, I'm just going to keep asking it because I'm not asking it just to drive it home at you. I'm asking it to drive it home to my own heart and my own soul. What is the one thing for you? Can you sing all that thrills my soul is Jesus and not stay to a lie? God who can read the very nature and the depths of your heart knows as you sing those words whether they're true or not. I rejoice in my Redeemer, greatest treasure. Is he? For David, having lost everything, this is what he wanted above all else. He could have said, Lord, one thing I have asked, my Lord, and that I shall seek, that I may return to the palace of Saul. He didn't write that. One thing I have asked, my Lord, that I shall seek, that I may return to my wife, that I may return to my family, that I may return to the hills of Bethlehem with the little flock of sheep and be with them. One thing I've asked, he could have asked of all those things, but he asked one thing that I have desired, to behold the beauty of the Lord and to meditate in his temple. Brothers and sisters in Christ, what is our one desire? What do we ask of the Lord? What's first in our prayer list? To be with God's people, to sit in God's presence, to gaze in silent, speechless awe and wonder at his beauty and then begin to respond and speak with him. 
Do we by faith both ask and seek the one better thing that both Mary and David desired and were not disappointed? Problem with us, brothers and sisters, is we, are, we live in a fabulously wealthy part of the world. We have everything that money can buy. We are more wealthy than, what, 85% of the world around us by a massive step in, in wealth. Perhaps what we need is that persecution that we keep talking about where we're driven away from family and friends. We're driven away from everything and all we have left is Christ and him alone. Notice in verse 5 what he says. He says, For in the day of trouble he will conceal me in his tabernacle. He will hide me in the secret place of his tent. He will lift me up on a rock. Notice that David's asking and seeking is based and explained by his confident knowledge that the Lord will conceal him. He will hide him. He will lift him up. He prays that prayer. One thing I've asked, my Lord, based on the reality that God, he knows that God will take him and will hide him away. Conceal him in that secret place in his tent. Conceal him in that, that, the tabernacle. And there alone, the two of them will converse and commune together. He asks not desperately wishing it might happen. He asks in the sure faith that God will hear him and answer his prayer. Notice that David is confident in the day of trouble when all others will forsake him. The Lord will hide him. When David, sorry, when Jonathan turned around in the field that day and left David and returned to the palace of his father, the Lord hid David. When his father and mother could not and would not perhaps be with him, the Lord concealed and hid and lifted David up. Notice that David's confidence is in the Lord himself. He will conceal me. He will hide me. He will lift me up. David's confidence is in the Lord himself will hide him. The unchangeable, eternal, all-powerful, all-knowing God hides us. When God Almighty takes us and hides us away in the secret place, there to commune and speak with us, none can pry us out of his hand. What a great motive to seek the Lord, to know the infinite joy in the day of trouble, to be hidden away with the Lord, close to him. You have, you have a friend that you like to be with? Uh, for Heather and I, it was five weeks of just being together. I had a great time. Poor Heather, you know, stuck with me for five weeks. But the friendship, the fellowship between us was so sweet and renewed and refreshed as husband and wife. And as much as I love my dear wife and would do pretty much anything for her, I know for a fact that my Lord Jesus loves me infinitely more. And in those moments when we're together and we begin to commune, it's something that I cannot explain. There is a soaring of my soul as I am with God in prayer and we are communing back and forth. I don't hear audible voices or anything like that, just to put your mind at rest. But I, also, but I do very much hear his voice in my heart. David says, for on the day of trouble, in the day of trouble, he will conceal me in his tabernacle. He will hide me in the secret place of his tent. He'll lift me up on a rock and now my head will be lifted up above my enemies and I will offer sacrifices in his tent with shouts of joy. He makes a commitment to God that when God does restore him. And we can see the answer to this, this commitment comes as the, tavern, or the Ark of the Covenant is brought back into Jerusalem. You remember the scene? And they go six steps. One, two, three, four, five, six. And they stop and they offer a whole bunch of sacrifices. And David begins to dance before the Lord with all his might, rejoicing and joyfully celebrating and praising the Lord for all of his goodness to David over all of David's life. There's a commitment. And brothers and sisters, here's, here's a great lesson for us. How quick we are to pray when we are in desperate need, but how slow we are to remember and praise God for the prayers that he has answered. 
And the voice that's heard crying out to God for help and strength must be the same voice that's heard again at the end of it all, crying out in praise and worship to God for answered prayer. David's desire was to be with the Lord in the safety of the Lord's tent, to commune with the Lord, to rest in the Lord, to be refreshed in the Lord. By the way, you notice the similarity in between Exodus 33. Remember Exodus 33? Moses goes up on the mountain. Show me your glory. Moses, you don't have any idea what you're asking. And God says to Moses, I, I, I can't show you my glory. No man will see that and live. But God meets him in a tremendous way. And the Bible says that God came down and stood before Moses. And God took Moses and he picked him up and he put him in the cleft of the rock. Like Moses being put his feet on the rock. Or sorry, David's having his feet put on the rock. So Moses put into the cleft of the rock. And he puts him there and he covers him with his hand. And he allows all of his goodness to pass before David. And he turns so only God's back parts can be seen. And there in the cleft of the rock in safety, God allows him to see something of his glory. That's kind of what David is asking for. It's kind of what David is enjoying. He will hide me in the secret place of his tent. He will lift me up on a rock. God literally took Moses and put him into the cleft. What that exactly means, whether he just physically picked him up and put him there, I don't know. But we do know one thing. In that tremendous moment, Moses was privileged to be shut in with the Lord, to see the Lord's glory, and to be tremendously changed by it. Brother and sister, is that the desire of our hearts? Notice his feet are set upon the rock. I was sitting there late at night thinking about this, and then my, my thoughts went to Psalm 40. And this is what David writes, or the psalmist writes in Psalm 40. He says, I waited patiently for the Lord, and he inclined to me and heard my cry. He brought me up out of the pit of destruction, out of the miry clay, and he set my feet upon a rock, and he made my footsteps firm. He put a new song in my mouth and a song of praise to our God. Many will see and fear and trust in the Lord. How blessed is the man who has made the Lord his trust. That's exactly David's experience. From the miry clay of some very dark and difficult circumstances, he knew the security that God had placed him on a rock. I want to move on because we're, we're running out of time here. But in verse 6, he says, And now my head will be lifted up above my enemies around me, and I will offer in his tent sacrifices with shouts of joy. I will sing, yes, I will sing praises to the Lord. David's faith in God's salvation and fellowship and protection will bring certain results. He was sure of it. That was the certainty of his faith. He will offer sacrifices and exuberant thanksgiving and worship to the Lord. He will be ultimately be elevated to the throne and the kingly rule for which David was originally anointed by Samuel. David's faith was unwavering. And he writes and speaks in the certainty that faith gives. Beloved, this morning, consider... Give thought to the faith of this mere man of God. David was an ordinary man, just like you and me. But David was a man of great faith in God, despite his circumstances. I would add, in view of his circumstances, he was still a great, a man of great faith in God. By faith, he had received the Lord who is light. By faith, he knew the Lord who is salvation. By faith, he asked and craved and desired the one thing of the Lord, to dwell and remain and abide in the Lord's house, to gaze on the beauty of the Lord, to meditate and inquire of God. David knew and exercised saving faith in God. David knew and exercised a living faith in God for fellowship with God himself. David's great faith gave him confidence that God would keep promises. Beloved brothers and sisters, my dear friends, in what, in whom are you trusting? In whom is your faith and confidence placed? What is the one thing of your life? And I I confess it again, how great that challenge was to my own heart as I banged the words into my computer. Wherever it is placed... Wherever your faith is placed, if it's not placed in the Lord, there will be an unceasing regret and sorrow and disappointment. But beloved, if you would lift, if we would lift our gaze, our view to heaven, 
to see the Lord Jesus Christ, to gaze on his beauty and behold his glory. It would blind us to all other things. It's like staring at the sun for a few moments, a few seconds even. All of a sudden the moon doesn't look quite so bright, does it? It looks pretty dim. Oh, beloved, trust the Lord. Trust the Lord who saves you. Trust the Lord who speaks and leads and guides and walks with you. I want to move on to one last part of this psalm, and I'm I'm just going to skip over a little bit here. Look at verse 9. I'm going to wrap up with this. He says, Do not hide your face from me. Do not turn your servant away in anger. You have been my help. Do not abandon me nor forsake me, O God of my salvation. David's not here, sorry, not here pleading for God to stop hiding his face. Rather, David is pleading that the Lord will not in any future time hide his face from David. How futile would it be for us to seek the Lord in prayer knowing his face was turned away from us? We no hope whatsoever. David had seen at very close proximity Saul's descent into madness after the Lord had left him. And David, in his own psalm of repentance, had prayed and cried that the Lord in grace and mercy would not deal in the same way with him. Take not thy Holy Spirit from me. He saw firsthand what that was like. David's desire was that God and his fellowship would continue and thrive. But the reality is, beloved, only one would ever truly experience the absolute heights of fellowship and communion that is possible with God. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit throughout all of eternity past knew and enjoyed the most intimate love and fellowship and conversation and intimacy. And the thing which David feared was only ever endured by one man of God, and that is the man Christ Jesus, who is the God-man. Saul knew something of a relationship with God, but not much. Consider how vastly, infinitely greater was the fellowship between the Father and the Son. And only one in all of human history, all of created history, would ever know that abandonment, that forsakenness. The thing which David feared so much was only ever endured by Christ. The Lord Jesus Christ, for the longest, darkest, most horrific three hours in all of history, endured abandonment by his Father as he hung upon the cross, enduring the wrath of God. What's Psalm 22 say? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And you know, beloved, you and I can read those words and they're moving, they're powerful, they're tremendous in the impact, but none of us have any concept of just what that would mean. The Bible talks about how Jesus, in the agony of his soul, cried out those words from the cross. And I can't imagine what it must have been to stand in the crowd all around the bottom of the cross, never mind the horrific goriness of blood and all of that all over the cross and the constant writhing up and down in pain of those men on the cross as they endured the snails through their wrists and the scourging and the blood that just flowed free, knowing that they were suffocating. I don't think there's any worse feeling in the world knowing you can't breathe. They could breathe out, but they couldn't breathe in. In the middle of all that, the Bible tells us that the whole earth was darkened for a time. And they must have wondered what in the world was going on. And then from the middle cross, he pushed down on the nails in his hands and feet, and he lifted up his voice, and he uttered a cry that all of eternity heard. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? None of us will really understand that. We can enter into the the results of it. We can understand something of it, but never the full weight of what that meant. And David prayed in in this part of his psalm, in this part of his prayer, verse 9, Do not hide your face from me, and God did not. 
Do not turn your servant away in anger, and God did not. You have been my help. Do not abandon me nor forsake me, and God did not. The Lord Jesus Christ endured those three hours of darkness, of forsakenness on the cross, that we might know the intimacy, the fellowship, the joy of gazing upon the Lord in all his beauty. The very thing that he's asking for had to be purchased by the very thing that he cried out to God to not do. Does that, that strike you? Don't abandon me. Let me be in your place. Let me gaze on your glory. Let me see the beauty of the Lord. The only way that David could do that is if Christ purchased that on the cross. The very thing that he asked God for, the one thing that he wanted above all else, had to be purchased by the very thing that he asked not to happen. But it happened to the Lord Jesus. Psalm gives us great insights into the life of faith of the man and the woman of God. But it all begins here. It all begins in understanding that all of this was purchased for us by Jesus Christ on a cross. Faith in God is possible because Christ died. Faith and reconciliation to God is possible because Christ died. Christ died on the cross for our sin, your sin and mine, to bring us to God. We've all turned away from God. The very thing that David said, don't turn away from me, we've all turned away from him. We've all gone our own way. David, or the Lord did not abandon David. The Lord did not turn away from David in anger. But we've all departed from God. We've all gone our own way. We've all sinned in defiance and rebellion to our creator and sustainer. We've all fallen under God's judgment and sentence of death. Eternal separation from God in hell. That's not a very popular statement anymore. We like to spin it like the politicians do. And talk about all the benefits of salvation. All the joys and glories of salvation. But the other side of it has to be made absolutely clear. That without salvation there is only an eternity in hell to look forward to. But when we realize, this is what the Bible says. But God demonstrates his own love toward us. And that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. He died to reconcile us to God. He died to bring us back to his Father. The Bible says in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 4 to 10, But God, being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, stop and think, what is love? What does it mean? In the biblical sense, love has its primary idea in a sacrifice for somebody else's benefit and somebody else's gain. And God so loved us that he gave. He gave his son to die on a cross for us. That whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. But God, Ephesians 2 again, sorry. But God, being rich in mercy, because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, he made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And he raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Brothers and sisters, do you ever stop and think that David's prayer, one thing I have asked from the Lord that I will seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life. God answered that prayer for the believer like this. For all the days of eternity you will dwell in my house and you will gaze on the beauty of the Lord, and you will meditate and inquire in his heavenly, eternal temple. Talk about more than all we could ask or think or imagine, eh? That's the answer of God to David. And the answer of God to David was because of what Jesus did on a cross. 
I'm going to read it again. But God, being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, he made us alive together with Christ. By grace we've been saved. And he raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the ages to come he might show the surpassing riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. You realize for all of eternity we will gaze on the beauty of the Lord, and we will never see it all. We went around UK for five weeks, and we saw tons of stuff we didn't see at all. And we could go back for five more weeks and probably still not see it all. But when we go to heaven, we will spend eternity. And one eternity into eternity, we'll stop and look at you and say, you know, we just haven't seen all of God's grace yet. There's still more to see. We will gaze on the beauty of the Lord and we will see him for all of eternity. For by grace you have been saved, Ephesians 2, 8, through faith, through that trusting in God and that not of ourselves. It's a gift of God, not a result of works that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. You say, what do I do with all this? How do I respond to this? If you're here this morning and you don't know Jesus Christ as your Savior, please, 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 I beg you to listen. What is the response? In Acts 17 and verse 30 and 31, it's written, Therefore, having overlooked the times of ignorance, God is now declaring to all men that all people everywhere should repent. What does that mean? It means turn away from sin. And turn toward God. Why? Because he has fixed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness through a man. We could say the man whom he has appointed. Having furnished proof to all by raising him from the dead. And from Jesus' own lips, this is the call to us to respond. The time is fulfilled. And the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. For God so loved you that he gave his only begotten son that if you would believe, if you would repent of sin, you would not perish but have everlasting life. And that's the message. It's a faith he lived, a real, genuine faith in the living God. A faith for salvation and a faith for fellowship. A faith for all of his life, which we didn't even get to, and a faith for ministry. But a faith. There's nothing different about David than you or I. It's David's God. That's the difference. Do you know the Lord Jesus Christ as your Savior? And if you do not, I plead with you. Repent and believe the gospel and you'll know the joy that David had despite all the difficult circumstances that surround you. Amen? Amen. I'm going to give you a few moments to just stop and think and pray and then we're going to come back and we're going to sing one more song together.
Gracious God and Heavenly Father, we give thanks this morning for the Lord Jesus Christ. The Lord Jesus, who was willing to endure that being forsaken. And Father, none of us can fully comprehend ever what that means, what that meant. The agony of his soul that he endured is something that we just simply cannot enter into. But Father, we thank you for it. We praise you, O God, for your faithfulness to save us. That he endured that. Father, we give thanks and we praise you, O God, for the fellowship, the reconciliation we have through Christ. And Father, for every single believer in this room, and Lord, I include myself in this, I cry out to you, O God, that you would work in our hearts, that we who live in such a wealthy, easy life and environment would pause to consider what is that one thing for us. Is it truly to, to be in the house of the Lord, to be in the presence of you, to gaze on your beauty and your glory. Father, I cry out to you, I plead with you, O God, do a work in us. Father, strip away from us all those things that are necessary to take away that we might have Christ and him alone. Father, how easy it is for the junk of the world to take over, to turn our minds and our hearts away, to draw us away like Solomon's many wives that drew him away for the Lord. How easy it is for the junk of our world to draw our hearts away from you. Father, I plead with you, do a great work in all our hearts, the believers that are here. And Father, for the one or two or more that are here this morning that do not know what it is to truly trust in Christ for salvation. Lord God, I cry out to you, do a work in their souls. Awaken them. Bring them to faith and repentance of sin. Father, I pray that they would not lay their head on their pillow to go to sleep tonight without knowing for a certainty that all is well between them and you. Father, I cry out to you that you would give them no rest until they make clear, they make sure where they stand before you. Father, I ask you these things, and I cry out to you for your blessing on this little church, and we do so in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand with me?